If I were to ask you this morning to define a great church, how would you do it? My guess is if I passed a piece of paper around, I would get varying ideas. If I were to go door to door in Victor, I would probably come up with lots of ideas. In fact, I did a quick search. What is a good church? Well, some would argue a good church is a large church. And so I was curious as to the largest church in America. The largest church is allegedly the Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. They boast some 43,000 people. Andy Stanley's church in North Point, actually they've got several campuses, is about 30,000. Life Church in Edmonton, Oklahoma is 30,000. The Gateway Church, I was not familiar with this one. It's in North Augusta, but they have several campuses. The number I came up with was 28,000. They claim to have 100,000. I'm not sure. Willow Creek has 25,000. But, but if you look at this, you need someplace around 30,000 people to be a great church. So I checked the U.S. Census. Iowa and Pauchik counties combined have a population of 34,000. So all we have to do is get everybody in the two counties together and maybe we can be a great church. Okay, maybe it's not the size of the church. Maybe it's the beauty of the building. And so I did a quick search. Most beautiful churches in America. This is the Washington National Cathedral. This is the inside. I was pretty impressed with the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Savannah, Georgia. But this one has a special heart in my, uh, special place in my heart. When I was in seminary, I took wedding photography or did pictures for about 10 years and actually had a chance to shoot a wedding in this cathedral. It is spectacular. But do you really have to have a beautiful building? Others would suggest what you need is an influential pastor, and I found a site that uh, gave the, the top 10 pastors over the last 25 years, and these were six of them. I'm guessing their names most of you are familiar with, Billy Graham, Charles Swindoll, Rick Warren, Gardner Taylor, John MacArthur, Andy Stanley, and, and without question, they are influential pastors. Do you know the history of Victor Baptist Church? Victor Baptist Church was planted in 1876 when a group of German immigrants came and, and homesteaded the land in this part of the country. They desired to have a church where they could fellowship, and so it was planted in, in 1876. The very first church building was built in 1903. The church didn't get a pastor, let alone an influential one, until 1932. Over 50 years without any pastor... Can it still be a great church if you have no pastor? This morning, I, I don't want so much to survey people. I would like to listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say. And he isn't so interested in great. We throw that term around, and I, I don't always know how to measure it. But, but can I change it slightly? What does a healthy church look like? And in Romans chapter 12, as Paul has changed from his, his doctrine to duty, from this theological premise that everything is based upon to the practical, he begins by showing what a faithful church should be made up of. It should be made up of people who are sur surrendered completely, who think soberly, who cooperate faithfully, who serve continually, and who love deeply. And no, we are not going to make it through all five of those this morning. But let me just begin by reading the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 12 in which Paul writes these words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable or your spiritual act of worship. Do not 
conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously if it's leadership let him govern diligently if it's showing mercy let him do it cheerfully love must be sincere hate what is evil cling to what is good be devoted to one another in brotherly love honor one another above yourself this morning i I primarily want to look at verses three four and five but paul begins with his command to surrender and we've spent two weeks on it and so i don't want to spend a lot of time on it but after this deep theological dive paul turns to the individual and says you and i must crawl upon god's altar and offer our very lives as a living sacrifice That means we will no longer be conformed, no longer squeezed into the mold of this world, but we will be transformed, we will be metamorphosized, if you were here last week, by the renewing of your mind. But he doesn't give us a lot of detail of how we renew our mind. If you were here last week, we spent a few moments, but I was struck as I was studying this week, maybe we just didn't get far enough in Romans chapter 12. Because as Paul comes to verse number three, he's going to say, for by the grace given to me, to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. He uses the word think in the English translation twice. If I can offer a little more literal translation, he actually uses it four times. Now, I'm not always the sharpest person, but when somebody repeats something four times, Maybe he's trying to get your attention. Maybe he's concerned about how it is that you think. Because as you think, so will you act. And thus the Apostle Paul is concerned about how you think. And whether or not you think of yourself more highly than you ought. Arrogance really isn't a problem, is it? Well, can I just go back to where we've been in the book of Romans? Romans chapter 8 ends with this amazing passage. As as Paul has, in chapter 8, gone into some of the great depths that we're no longer condemned if we're in Christ Jesus. And he ends with one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wait a second, Paul. That's a nice platitude, but come on. Did you forget about the Jews? You once claimed to love them and you've set them aside. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul addresses that question that must be asked. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, then how do you explain Israel? 
And Paul basically in chapters 9, 10, 11 is going to come up with three answers. Well, not all of Israel has been set aside. It isn't complete. There's still a remnant. It's not forever, but it's only temporary. But it's very purposeful. Because by setting aside Israel, those of us who are Gentiles have the incredible privilege of being grafted into the people of God. And we have such an amazing opportunity. Because of God's amazing grace, we can now be part of the people of God. Be careful. Because oftentimes grace leads to pride. Evidently, in the church in Rome, there was a growing sense that the Jews got exactly what they deserved. If they were only as spiritual as me, God wouldn't have thrown them aside. See, sometimes we get so caught up in the grace of God that we begin to think it's us and not him. And in chapter 11, Paul goes out of his way to say, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul was ever concerned that we never presume upon God's grace as somehow we deserve it. Because the moment you think you deserve it, you haven't experienced it. In fact, Paul is going to go out of his way to say, for by the grace given to me, Paul never forgot that he began his career in the Bible as a murderer. The very first time we're introduced to him, he is overseeing the stoning, the execution, the murder of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, because Stephen didn't believe as Paul thought he should. He was overseeing that. In fact, it wasn't just Stephen. Paul went door to door looking for Christians and hauling them off to be imprisoned or worse. And then God, in his amazing grace, found Paul. And for the rest of his life, Paul would travel the Roman Empire, sharing the good news of Jesus with, of all people, Gentiles. And he could never really get past God's grace to choose him. In fact, I would argue the more Paul understood the grace of God, rather than becoming more arrogant, he actually becomes much humbler. If you were here when we went through the the road trip through the Bible, I put together my handy-dandy timeline because I like these. And maybe you don't, so humor me for a few seconds. The first 30 years of the the first century is largely the time in which the Gospels take place. In about 33 AD, Jesus dies. The book of Acts goes to about 60. As you begin to put on the timeline the different books in the New Testament, James was probably the very first book. Galatians was undoubtedly the first book that Paul wrote. And then Paul goes on all of these missionary journeys. And as he goes on the missionary journeys, some of the Gospels are written. And then Paul's first letters are to the Thessalonica church in about 50, 51 AD. On his third missionary journey, he writes the book of Corinthians, his first letter, while he's in the city of Ephesus. And he says this, For I am the least of the apostles. 
As Paul writes to Corinth, he views himself as someone who probably doesn't even deserve to be called an apostle because he had persecuted the church. I'm the least of the apostles. Fast forward, he continues his journey. He writes 2 Corinthians. He writes the book of Romans. He then in 60 AD is eventually imprisoned and he writes the great prison epistles. And in the book of Ephesians, some five years later, says, although I am the less than the least of all God's people. Least of the apostles, least of all God's people. Fast forward a a few years, Paul gets set free according to tradition, goes on his fourth missionary journey. During his fourth missionary journey, he's going to write his first letter to Timothy. And in chapter one, he says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In 55 AD, In Corinth, he's the least of all apostles. In 60 AD, he's the least of all God's people. By the time he's facing his death, he recognizes he is the worst sinner that has ever walked the face of the earth. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest if you were sitting next to Paul in prison, you wouldn't have agreed with his assessment. But the closer he got to God, the greater he understood his sin in fact paul could never get past this grace that was given to him but for some reason the mercy was given for this reason that in me as the foremost sinner jesus christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life and then as paul contemplates god's amazing Grace and mercy, he explodes in an uncontrollable fit of praise. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. As Paul lived in light of the grace of God, arrogance wasn't the norm. Humility was. But if we can go back to chapter 12 in the book of Romans, Paul is going to say, I say to every one of you. Does everybody struggle with arrogance? We live in a day in which self-esteem is talked about often. That many struggle with what would be described as low self-esteem. Can a low self-esteem person struggle with pride? Well, I came across a definition I had never seen before, and I think it's now my favorite definition of the word pride. The author defined it this way. Pride is thinking highly of my own opinion. My opinion is, my opinions are better than yours. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever get in a discussion with your spouse and you're convinced your opinion is better than her opinion or his opinion? Do you ever have a problem with your opinion being not as valuable to others as it is to you? If that's our definition of pride, it's kind of interesting. David Meyer, several years ago, wrote a book entitled The Inflated Self, and in it he put together, there's about a million high school seniors a year that apply to colleges, and in there they ask a number of questions. He just looked at three. In regards to their leadership, in regards to their athletic abilities, and in regards to how they got along. And in regards to leadership, 70% of graduating seniors viewed themselves as above average in leadership. Now, I'm not a mathematician, 
But somehow that seems to have a bit of problem there. Especially when you figure only 2% viewed that they were below average in leadership. In athletic ability, it was a little better. Only 60% thought they were above average. 6% thought they were below average. But this is my favorite one. 60% of high school seniors said they were above average in getting along with others. 0% said they were below average. The reason we have problems in the world can't be because we don't get along because every high school senior is above average at getting along with people. If you ask them. But not just to pick on poor seniors, they surveyed college professors. How does your teaching ability relate to other college professors? Only 94% of them thought they were above average. I fear if we're honest, all of us struggle with a high opinion of our own opinions. And Paul says that we cannot think highly of ourselves. We must be willing to humble ourselves. And so you say, Dan, so that means you need to put yourself down. It's not what Paul says. He doesn't advocate a low opinion of yourself. He advocates a high opinion of yourself. If I can just go back to one more illustration. Several years ago, let me set this up a little bit. Several years ago, we were hiring a youth pastor. And I have a good friend who had been trying to, to send some names to me. And I was talking to him and complaining a little bit about a candidate we had just talked to because he was a know-it-all. I don't know if you've ever met a know-it-all, but he, he just had every answer. And I was sharing that with my friend. And he said, Dan, just be careful. Sometimes they act like they know it all because they do. Do highly competent people have to be humble? Let me take you to perhaps the most highly competent person who walked the face of the earth 15, 2,500 years ago. If you go back to the book of Daniel, you're introduced to a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar conquered the known world. One of a handful of people who could honestly say, I have ruled the world as he knew it. You can get lots of different answers as to exactly what the the seven wonders of the ancient world is. If you put them together, three of the things Nebuchadnezzar built are on someone's list. He had the walls. Herodotus, a Greek historian, claimed that the walls were able to have four chariots wide. They were humongous, and yet the Tigris River was able to flow through them and yet keep people out. The great ziggurat in the middle of the city was seen for miles as it was a spectacular construction. But without question, the one that makes it on almost every list of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. The reality is Babylon's in a desert. It doesn't have a whole lot of water. And yet, according to history, Nebuchadnezzar was able to create an environment in which tropical plants planted. The the history goes that his wife was from the mountains and she hated the desert. And so he brought the mountains to her in a, a feat of engineering we still can't begin to understand. We don't know how he made the hanging gardens of Babylon. But they were one of the most beautiful things ever made by human hands. But in Daniel chapter 4, he has a dream. God sends him a dream of a tree that grows up and spreads over the entire world and then gets cut down. He's fearful of what it might mean, and so he tries everybody in his his cabinet to interpret it. Nobody can. Finally, he goes to Daniel, and Daniel is obviously devastated, and oh, that this were for your enemies God is sending you a warning. 
that your arrogance is about to be humbled. And it says a year later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking in the midst of his kingdom and saying, look at the Babylon I have built. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's a cow. The smartest, the strongest, the most impressive man who was on the planet at that moment thought he was a cow. Even highly capable people need humility. But Paul says that what we ought to do rather than thinking lowly of ourselves is to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Sober is one of those words that I I think the vast majority of the time we use it, we use it in relationship to alcohol. You're under the influence or you're sober. In fact, the word sober isn't used many times in, in the New Testament. One of the other places it's used is in Luke chapter 8. And in Luke chapter 8, there's this story of Jesus taking his disciples and saying, we need to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee into the Gadarians section. And when they arrive there, there's this man who's possessed by a legion of demons and he is as out of control as possible. And Jesus simply speaks and all of the the demons come out of him, go into pigs, they run down into the water and, and die. And then we're told that the people came out to see what Jesus had done. And when they came to Jesus, they found this man who once was controlled by demons sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and there's the word, in his right, in his sober mind. See, I, I think what Paul is longing for us to do is not to somehow put ourselves down, but to think accurately about ourselves. He's just spent 11 chapters trying to help us understand of how valuable we are to God. That God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to take upon himself the punishment that you deserve. While we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place. He offers to us life eternal. He sends his spirit to change us. He has so much planned for us that we are incredibly valuable. He's not asking us to put ourselves down. He's simply asking us to look at ourselves honestly. And then he throws out this statement, and we could spend the rest of the morning. There are, one commentator suggested, 50 legitimate ways to understand the last phrase. We're not going to go through all 50 this morning. Let me just share the two most common. The first is that the measure should be viewed as a standard. And what Paul is suggesting that we should view ourselves in accordance with a standard of faith. We should view ourselves in light of our faith. That's certainly possible. The second that I think is more likely is that he is using a comparison, a quantity, that all of us have different amounts of faith. Some of us have tremendous faith. Others of us have small faith. But faith is a lot like your body. The more it's exercised, the more it grows. Uh, Harrison Lippert's a really good friend. He pastures in Steamboat Rock. He had been in the, uh, the Air Guard Reserves for, I think, 27 years. He retired about four years ago. And once he got out of the garden, didn't have to do his annual physical 
PT training. He thought he was getting out of shape, so he decided he was going to run a marathon. He took a year, and he faithfully ran every day, and by the end of the year was running a couple hours every day. He accomplished his marathon, and he shared any of us could do that. I believe him, but I'm not going to test him. My guess is most of us could run a marathon if we really, really wanted to stretch ourselves. But there are some that it just comes naturally. Renee has a nephew who was in the EOD in the Navy for 20 years. He followed SEALs around, trained with SEALs for most of his life. When he hit 35, he was fearing he was getting out of shape, so he decided he would try running. And so to try running, he, without training, signed up for a marathon. Ran the marathon and decided that was too easy. Two weeks later, he ran a 50K. Now, that is not normal. He has an unusual measure of physical stamina. I do not. I'm not running a 50K, a marathon, or across the road to my house if I don't have to. But faith is much the same. My guess is that you have met people. I know I have who amaze me with their faith. Some of us struggle with our faith. But we aren't believers without faith. But Paul is wanting us to recognize that God has gifted us all differently. And that's perfectly okay. In fact, it's to be expected. He continues down in verse number four and says, just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. The body is an incredible creation. I was listening to somebody who tried to go into the number of muscles you have and the number of bones you have and the number of tendons and ligaments and the reality is, not everybody agrees what are the number of muscles, which are separate muscles, which are muscle groups, and so I'm not even going to try. But all of us have an amazing body. But it always amazes me how it doesn't take a very big part of my body to be in pain before all of me is. Have you ever got a toothache? I mean, when you think about it, teeth are actually quite small. They, they don't take up very much space. They really don't take up a whole lot of function. They just mostly sit in your mouth and are waiting for you to eat. But my guess is many of us have had that wonderful experience in which we stay up all night with our tooth, keeping it company, because it won't let us sleep. But come on, a tooth is an incredibly small thing. Why, why should it really matter? And yet it does. Small parts matter. But we have a huge diversity in our body. My, my guess is that many of you have seen the PSA, heard it on the radio. Our strength is in our diversity. I think that's partially true. Diversity is in our strength. Our strength is diversity with unity. See, if every part of my body did exactly the same thing, I'd be in trouble. If every part of my body were teeth... I'd have a really hard time walking. I'd have a really hard time listening. I'd have a really hard time seeing. And yet God has given me all of these different parts. And yet if we're honest, there are certain parts that we wish we were. 
I mean, who here wants to be the appendix of the church? Who wants to be the small intestine? Who wants to be those parts that no one ever sees but are incredibly necessary? Most of us want to be the seen part, the praised part, the appreciated part. But Paul's whole point is the body is only healthy when all of us do our role. Next week, we're going to jump down and Paul is going to turn to the subject of gifts. And I don't think it's intended to be an exhaustive list. He only shares seven. As you compare, there are four passages in the New Testament that talks about gifts. Depending on how you want to count them, there's maybe upwards of 20, 25 different gifts. But I don't think the point is to spend hours and hours trying to figure out what our gift is as much as it is to start doing something. He's going to say, just as each of us have many parts, but it is only helpful when we all work together. If you haven't picked up yet, I enjoy the sport of football. One of the reasons I really love football is because in order for a football team to succeed, it takes all kinds of different people. You have some that are 6'7", 6'8", and weigh 350 pounds and can barely run a 40-yard dash, let alone in, in a fast time. You have others who are 5'6", maybe 160, 170 pounds and can run that same 40-yard dash in 4.2 seconds. And yet, imagine if Tyreek Hill, considered by many to be the fastest man in the NBA, ran a 40-yard dash in 4.2-something. If he was told by his coach, this week you're going to play left tackle. You need to block that guy that weighs 300 pounds. Keep him off the quarterback. How's that going to go? It isn't going to go very well at all. In fact, the teams that are successful are the teams that manage to have a quality offensive line. They have wide receivers. They have running backs. They have this guy who stands there and really isn't very athletic. Tom Brady is the quintessential quarterback. He also holds the record for the slowest 40 ever at the NFL Combines. But it doesn't matter because that's not his job to run fast. His job is to process information fast, to get everybody in the right spot. And when the whole team works together, it is absolutely amazing to watch diversity come together in unity. I don't know if the name Deion Sanders is familiar to you or not, but Deion Sanders in the 90s and into the first part of the 2000s was one of the most popular NFL stars. He actually in college was not a one-sport Not a two-sport, but a three-sport star. In fact, his senior year, one of the more famous days was he was playing baseball. And oh, by the way, he did play in the major leagues. But while he was at college, he was a star on the baseball team. And there was a doubleheader in which he played the first game, ran from the baseball stadium to the track field, got into his track clothes. He anchored the 4 by 100 race that his team won and then ran back and played the second game. He was an amazing individual. He invented the whole position of the, the shutdown corner. Deion Sanders retired, not because he had gotten slow, not because he had gotten tired of football. He retired because of his big toe. See, one of the ailments that is becoming increasingly common is something called turf toe. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not going to try and explain it to you. But as I understand it, a turf toe is when you push off and your toe grabs just a second too long and it hyperextends and it damages those ligaments. Deion Sanders couldn't play in the NFL because of his toe. 
Think about that for just a second. 99.9% of him was in incredible physical shape, but a toe stopped him. May I suggest Victor Baptist Church will never be what it should be until all of us are doing exactly what God has called us to. You may say, I, I could never stand up and speak. It's not your job. But what is your job? I, I think we're going to talk more about it next week, but I think what is desperately needed is not for us to spend so much time looking for what we do well, but looking for what needs done and finding out if we do that well. You'll find out really soon whether or not you belong in the nursery. It won't take very many weeks to find out if that's your gift. But God wants you someplace. Where are you going to serve? Father, I I thank you for the book of Romans. I I thank you for the incredible reminder of our need to use the gift that you have given to us. And God, I pray that we would be a body filled with diversity, moving together in unity to serve your kingdom. And then we will praise and thank you for it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.